Okay, our next speaker is well known to everyone, Dr. Henry Mazur, who's at the George Washington University as his official role here. He also as a side gig, uh, gig uh, works every now and then at the NIH. Um, and he's, he's been involved in HIV really since the beginning, seeing some of the original cases in New York City in the late 70s, people showing up spontaneously with pneumocystis that was unexplained, took a while for all that to accumulate, um, and then moved uh, to Bethesda and did a lot of the landmark studies on pneumocystis and uh, the CD4 count associations and that type of thing. Um, he's gonna talk to us today about a forgotten problem, which is opportunistic infections, and we still see them. And it's amazing to me how often um, some people who are new to the field um, come running up to me and say, oh my gosh, I just saw this case of Toxo. It was really interesting. And I'm thinking, yeah, it is. But we used to see one a week back in the day. So, um, so it's good to have this review. Thank you, Henry. Well, uh, thanks, uh, Mike. Um, uh, you know, Nina said when uh, she started that when she first came to meetings, she could remember Mike Sag and Joe Aaron uh, 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 discussing uh, antiretroviral therapy. I think Mike and I are probably the only ones who remember before Ron White, almost the entire meetings about HIV were about opportunistic infections. I think fortunately, that's not a problem uh, anymore. I know that all of you know a lot about opportunistic infections and about pneumocystis, toxo, uh, and crypt. But I'd like to talk a little bit about that and tell you about some of the new issues about diagnosis and therapy. And you know, there's probably only one or two reasons why I'd be envious of Mike Sag and uh, Connie Benson and others. And that is that they have trials with well-designed formats, hard endpoints, and they can talk about evidence-based medicine. For opportunistic infections in the 1990s and the 2000s, we had good trials in North America, but since then it's been very hard to do good trials. We've had to rely on data from Sub-Saharan Africa and Asia, where the background care may be somewhat different. We've had to rely on observational trials and logic. And thus, some of the changes are not based on as uh, uh, hard data as some of the other issues you've heard about today. So I have no uh, financial disclosures. Uh, and uh, in terms of learning objectives, again, I'd like to talk about the three most important opportunities and infections right now, nemesis, toxin, and crypt, and tell you a few things uh, that have changed and are in the current guidance, guidelines. So first of all, I think even though uh, you heard how well Ryan White clinics are doing in terms of antiretroviral therapy, I think we all recognize that opportunistic infections still occur for two major reasons. One is if you look at the number of late diagnoses, this slide shows AIDS at the time of diagnosis in rural and urban metropolitan areas. And it's still distressing to see that 20 or 25% of people don't present until they're in the opportunistic infection range and come in with an opportunistic infection or tumor. The second issue, which is very clear to everybody here, uh, is that if you look at uh, viral suppression or linkage to care or time to viral suppression, uh, we're making progress, particularly in your clinics, but these are data from Washington, D.C. In Washington, we have a big issue in terms of the number of patients who don't come or stay in care. And although the federally qualified clinics and Ron and White clinics are doing wonderful work in D.C., we still have a ways to go. So I think we all recognize the patients come in late 
And even when they are initially in care, they're often not suppressed. And those are the patients, obviously to all of you who have opportunistic infections or who are susceptible to them. So let's start with one of two questions I have here. Uh, a 52-year-old uh, woman without known HIV is diagnosed with PCP. She's antibody positive. Of course, she has a low CD4 and high viral load. She's intubated on day four of trimethoprim sulfa. When should you start antiretroviral therapy? I think most people in this room know the answer. So let's start polling you. And then at the end, I'm going to tell you a couple of things that you might think about. So let's see how you answer, whether you're adherent to the guidelines or whether you're not. And maybe I should ask you what the right answer on an exam is and what you actually do. And there are two different skills. You didn't get to be doctors by not knowing how to answer uh, questions for an exam. So let's see, do we have an answer? Okay, so... Um, uh, maybe the first two are both correct. You certainly want to start within two weeks, whether or not you have to start immediately. I think the guidelines would say you have to start within uh, the first two weeks. But I think the point uh, of those of you who said immediately, I think is well-placed because when you ask experts or experienced clinicians what they do, they don't always wait two weeks, and we'll get back to that in a moment. Uh, so we have the answer. Uh, the answer, is, the, the official answer is in the next two weeks, but we'll talk about it immediately as well. So the guidelines would say for most uh, opportunity infections, start within two weeks. And immediately is admittedly within two weeks. And often people talk, especially about somebody who's in the ICU, about waiting to see what the adverse uh, reactions of the drug are, uh, looking to see what other concurrent problems they are. And once somebody is stable, uh, then start them out antiretrovirals, especially if you think they'll absorb the drugs. But it's a whole other issue about whether you can start the drugs while they're intubated, uh, and we won't get into that. But for pneumocystis in general, you want to start within two weeks, assuming you can get the drugs to them. Uh, but anyway, uh, this is the famous uh, Andy Zalopa trial that showed that at least early initiation gave you better survival than later initiation. And this was largely due to the fact that starting antiretroviral early, as you all know, makes it less likely you'll get some other opportunity infection. So the classic data has been uh, start early, but that has been defined as within two weeks. And again, whether it's immediate or within two weeks, uh, we'll talk about in a second. All right, and what the guidelines would also remind you is that with TB and cryptococcus, there has been concern historically about uh, iris and whether or not starting antiretroviral therapy before your burden of infectious organisms is reduced, uh, and therefore that you should wait. And these intervals you have to look up because they're completely arbitrary. But say two to eight weeks after initiation of therapy uh, uh, for TB in general, but if their CD4 count is less than 50 or they're pregnant, you start it sooner. Uh, if their CD4 count is greater than 50, then you start it uh, uh, later. For cryptococcal meningitis, they said four to six weeks. And again, sooner if it's mild and greater than 50. So the point is, you worry a little bit about iris, and therefore the granulomas, diseases, TB, and fungi, particularly crypt, the guidelines have suggested that you wait because of the fear that iris will be severe. But of course, 
in the last decade or two, we've learned how to deal with iris. Uh, we're better at uh, managing these complications with non-steroidals or occasionally with steroids. And I think the point here is that waiting for up to two weeks or waiting for four to six weeks or four to eight weeks, I think is changing, even though there isn't data. If you ask people on the guidelines panel, what do they do? Many of them do not wait. And Connie Benson has been pointing this out for a while. Um, and uh, if you look to see whether there are data, the data on which waiting is based is at least a decade or a decade and a half old. Now that we're better at managing iris, I would just keep in mind that there's gonna be data probably coming out, not ideal data, but data that's been presented and hopefully will be published, suggesting if you start antiretrovirals early, that patients have as good or perhaps a better outcome than if you wait. So again, the patient we presented who's in an ICU, you may not be able to start antiretrovirals because it's not easy to assure that they're gonna absorb their drug uh, and that they're gonna have uh, drug levels that will be effective and not lead to resistance. But just keep in mind that I think the trend is for all patients to try to start antiretroviral therapy early, as long as you keep in mind their ability to adhere, their ability to absorb, et cetera. So the first point here is start thinking about starting your antiretroviral earlier and look for data that will be coming out soon, suggesting, not definitive, that this is as good or a better strategy. So let's talk a little bit about diagnostics. And I'd like to make a point about diagnostics for pneumocystis, for Toxo, and for Crypt. First of all, the, the first question I'd like to talk about is the role of PCR in terms of diagnosis. So the question I'm gonna ask you is, which of the following provide definitive evidence that pulmonary disease is caused by pneumocystis? Positive serum beta-glucan, positive serum pneumocystis PCR, positive uh, BAL pneumocystis PCR for any cycle number, a cycle number less than 15, or a positive sputum direct fluorescent antibody. I'll be interested to see what you say because there's probably the older school and the newer school about what you do. Okay. All right, good. So uh, most of you got the answer that I would say. I think the most definitive is a positive sputum DFA. The problem, of course, is that many of your hospitals don't do uh, a, any smear anymore. They just do a PCR. Next slide. So my answer was a positive sputum or bronchoviolar lavage uh, pneumocystis stain, including a direct fluorescent antibody. Next slide. And that's an antibody test of a specimen, not a serum antibody test. Next slide. So pneumocystis uh, over the course of the HIV epidemic has really evolved in terms of how we make the diagnosis. You know, originally we would get tissue by an opener, transbronchial biopsy. Then we did lavages. I think many places still do sputums. We went from doing uh, colorometric uh, stains like uh, silver to immunofluorescence and then to PCR. And the question is, is this the right direction to be going? Next slide. So in the era that Mike Sag and I trained, uh, I think we would sometimes look at tissue on the lower right uh, and 
if you saw foamy intraalveolar material like that and on a special standing soil organism, there's no doubt what was causing the pulmonary uh, dysfunction. It was pneumocystis and it was not something else. A little bit later, uh, let's go back one. Uh, a little bit later, uh, when we would see a lavage or an imprint of a lung, and we saw a lot of organisms like on the silver strain, stain on the top left, or the inland forensis on the bottom uh, left, uh, you would be quite sure it was pneumocystis because in order to see this, there had to be a lot of organism. And unfortunately, we don't go to the micro lab anymore. We don't go to pathology because there was an era when we would go down to the micro lab. Uh, how many of you have been in the micro lab in the last two years? Actually, more of you than I thought. Um, and when you see one pneumocystis organism or one diplococci, uh, uh, you say, is this really the cause? But when you see a big cluster, you say, okay, this is true. So on the next slide, the problem now is most laboratories use a pneumocystis PCR. And what I'm trying to perseverate at, about is you need to be careful about how you, inter, how you um, uh, uh, use this data. Because this shows the uh, Mayo Clinic uh, uh, lower respiratory tract panel and includes pneumocystis. Next slide. And the problem with pneumocystis is that pneumocystis is present when you have pneumocystis pneumonia, but it can also be present other times. So for instance, infant and healthcare workers are infected and become seropositive and they can be reinfected. So if you happen to get them when they have a subclinical infection, they don't have pneumonia, but you can find pneumocystis there. And somebody with COPD or somebody who's, immu who's immunosuppressed, you can find pneumocystis in the airways, which is not causing pulmonary dysfunction. So the problem is when you have a positive PCR, you have an extremely sensitive test, but you don't know whether you're picking up colonization uh, or a cause of disease. Now the cycle number helps you a little bit. The problem is that uh, you don't always know how good a specimen you got, how diluted it was. So you're really guessing that, there, that the clinical scenario is correct and the pneumocystis uh, is a likely cause. Next slide. Um, so pneumocystis is very good for ruling, uh, pneumocystis PCR is very good for ruling out uh, pneumocystis as a cause of disease. It's a very sensitive test, and if it's negative, the patient does not have pneumocystis pneumonia. If it's possible, if it's positive, you really don't know whether the patient has pneumocystis pneumonia, whether they have a colonizer, and the real cause is congestive heart failure, pulmonary embolus, histoplasmosis, or something else. So just keep that in mind. And you know, one person has said that in order to interpret this PCR correctly, you need the laboratory result and a brain. So you need to think about, does this really fit the scenario? And are you sure it's not something else? Now, in general, when you're dealing with a sterile fluid like CSF, again, I'm not talking about pneumocystis, I'm talking about this in general. A sterile fluid shouldn't have organisms there. So if you find, uh, if you find um, uh, histo or pneumococcus or meningococcus, you can be pretty sure that's the cause of the disease. But just remember, even in sterile fluids, there's some latent uh, or there's some latent viruses like the herpes viruses. And if you find CMV or EBV or HHV6, you're not sure whether that's a latent organism and a few cells happen to be there or the cause of a, um, uh, of a clinical syndrome. For non-sterile fluids like respiratory GI, again, separating out colonization 
from the cause of disease is extremely difficult. So just keep that in mind. PCR is great as a sensitive test, hard to know how specific it is. Next slide. Now, is there a serologic test for pneumocystis? I wish there were. Our laboratory has been working on this for 30 years and we've been unsuccessful. So there is no serum antibody or PCR test that's helpful. There are research uh, tests, but you can't find pneumocystis circulating very often. LDH in another era, we used to think that was suggestive of pneumocystis. It's really suggestive of lung damage and nothing more. Doesn't tell you why there's lung damage. And then there's the great debate about beta-glucan. And I'll tell you that the most knowledgeable person about infectious disease in general is Jack Bennett of the NIH. He knows everything. And his bottom line about beta-glucan is you should never order it for any reason, no matter what patient population you're looking at. And the issue on the next slide is for pneumocystis, this is probably true for a lot of things. So on the next slide. So this shows the detection of beta-glucan in pneumocystis and non-pneumocystis. And it depends on what um, beta-glucan uh, test you're looking at, but let's assume for the moment that a positive result is 80, is uh, over 80 to 100. You can see that some of the pneumocystis don't reach that, and some of the non-pneumocystis uh, are above that. So this doesn't really give you very much uh, uh, information. And uh, again, Paul Sachs, who I debate about every three years at some big meeting, he likes the test, I don't. He tells you, it gives you a little more information. He's very smart and very knowledgeable, but let's just say it's controversial, but I don't find it at all helpful. Next slide. So let's change the central nervous uh, uh, system infections and make two points about diagnosis and therapy. Next slide. So this is a mass lesion. And all of you know on the next slide that there's a lengthy differential diagnosis on the left. But our main issue is, is this toxo or is, it, is this lymphoma? And we know that regardless of what the radiologist tells us, uh, they can't really tell you the cause of the mass lesion. I wanna make two points about the diagnosis. First of all, in terms of serology, I used to say that if the patient is IgG negative in their blood, they do not have toxo. And I think in the era where laboratories did a sensitive IgG, that was true. I think now it is generally true that if the serum antibody is negative, they probably don't have toxo. The problem is that more and more laboratories are doing quick uh, EIA tests or other tests which are not very sensitive. So they can miss a low titer. And the titer has nothing to do with whether or not the patient has latent infection or not. If they're positive, they have latent infection and they can react to it. So just be aware that antibody is not as good an indicator to rule out uh, toxo as it used to be. The other issue is that toxo PCR, I think is an extremely important test to do on the serum and the CSF. And I say that with very little evidence. I think biologically it's a test that is highly specific and small studies would say that there's about a 50% sensitivity in terms of picking up toxo. It's interesting that in the literature, there are a lot more studies on toxo PCR on pigeons, on rodents, uh, on uh, sewer water than there are in humans. It's very hard to find a good study on toxo PCR, but at least I'm convinced that in a good laboratory, it is very specific and you assume that if the serum or the CSF is PCR positive, the patient in fact has toxo. I just remind you that if you find EBV or CMV by PCR, that may be a latent infection that has nothing to do with what you're saying. And since EBV 
EBV can be associated with lymphoma. Uh, and you, you would wonder then if the patient has lymphoma, if the EBV is positive, but it may also be simply a latent infection, which is irrelevant to the cause of the lesion. And then you're going to give them an empiric trial uh, for toxin and see if they respond. Next slide. The point about therapy I'd like to make is that for many years, the uh, guidelines uh, recommended sulfadiazine and pyrimethamine. I think that's the drug of choice uh, in terms of efficacy, even though it's only an oral regimen. The problem, as almost all of you have tried to treat toxono, is that either you can't get sulfadiazine or pyrimethamine, or the pyrimethamine is extraordinarily uh, expensive. So that leaves you with the trimethyl sulfa. And I think although there isn't a adequately powered uh, a head-to-head -head comparison. There are enough studies now, that I would consider that to be the therapy of choice because you can give it IV or orally. And I wouldn't fuss too much about whether um, uh, this was, uh, um, uh, whether you should try to get sulfur and pyrimethamine. If pyrimethamine is not available, you really don't have a lot of options. Clindamycin by itself does nothing. Uh, if you can get pyrimethamine, there's a reason you can't use sulfur, that's fine. But then you're stuck with the tov, not stuck with the tovacone, but you have a tovacone. It's better with pyrimethamine, but the whole issue here is you can't get pyrimethamine, perhaps. And you worry about the absorption of uh, a tovacone if somebody can't take a high-fat uh, meal with the tovacone. Those are your options, but the problem is some of the drugs are not available. Next slide. So the last topic is cryptococcal meningitis. And there are two issues. First of all, Cryptococcal meningitis, next slide, is a terrible disease. Uh, next slide. And in this country, the mortality of cryptococcal meningitis is still 10, 15, 20, 25%. So it is a highly lethal disease. And uh, David Spack gave you 10 things that you should remember for your practice. I often find that clinicians do not remember to get a cryptococcal antigen. But I just want to remind you that for patients with CD4 less than 100, there is a reasonable instance in this country of a positive test. And if you find a positive test, that predicts that they're going to develop cryptococcal meningitis. So you need to evaluate them, get, a, uh, get cultures, get a spinal uh, tap. And then if the CSF is positive for crypt, they have incipient disease and you need to treat them as if they have uh, cryptococcal meningitis. If the CSF is negative, you can treat with them with an oral regimen, fluconazole, uh, like you would with non-cerebral crypto. Next slide. Diagnosis. One point. Uh, a lot of um, uh, film, uh, a lot of uh, panels uh, have cryptococcus, and this is a little bit uh, counterintuitive. Next slide. And that is that at low titers of cryptococcus, despite what I just told you the PCR is often falsely negative. So if you think somebody has a clinical scenario of cryptococcal meningitis and the PCR is negative, you should get a CSF cryptantigen. So don't let the lab talk you out of getting a cryptantigen. And there are many anecdotal cases, admittedly not a huge trial, showing that this is important. Next slide. Therapy. I think that all of us probably know look up that liposomal ampho and flu cytosine is the regimen of choice. I want to make two points. One is that in terms of your consolidation phase, they've raised the recommended therapy from 400 to 800. This is a lookup because it's more fungicidal and there are fewer relapses. So that's a minor detail. Next slide. 
One of the interesting issues is that there is a new option, and that is in the New England Journal recently, there was a suggestion that, not a suggestion, there was a trial that indicated that you could use a single dose of liposomal uh, amphotericin followed by uh, flucyzine and fluconazole. So this is one dose of amphotericin, and you could dream that maybe the patient comes in the ER and you don't even have to admit them, give them uh, liposomal amphotericin, send them out on fluconazole and flucytosine. And the question is, you really want to do this. Next slide. So this is the curves of the comparator and the liposomal, uh, liposomal uh, regimen. I'm not telling you right now what the comparator is. And if you look at the bottom, uh, you can see the liposomal ampho may have been a little bit, the, the single dose uh, uh, was probably better than the control. Next slide. The problem with this is that this was actually an extremely well-conducted trial. It was conducted in Africa where antiretroviral therapy and monitoring are different. But what's important to realize is the comparator was not the regimen we use in this country. It was the WHO regimen of amphotericin deoxycholate, the old form uh, uh, used for seven days, followed by fluconazole for seven days. And in that study, both arms had a pretty high mortality. And admittedly, in this country, our mortality might not be much better, but the mortality was 25%, and the, and the uh, toxicity was 50 to 60%. So both regimens were pretty poor, uh, and the patients all had an LP at uh, day seven, day 14, so they wound up staying in the hospital anyway, I suspect, most of the time. And in this country, if you had to follow uh, um, uh, cerebrospinal fluid pressure and toxicities and get an LP at day 14 as an outpatient, maybe some of you could do that, but I think that would be very difficult, particularly with the patient population that gets cryptangin, uh, which gets cryptococcal meningitis because they're the ones who come in late, uh, who aren't adherent to their therapy, they may not be the easiest population to deal with. Next slide. So the experts use this single-dose liposomal info uh, regimen in the U.S. When I've asked people, there are people who are extremely enthusiastic about the regimen, but when you ask them if you ever used it, the answer is no. So uh, I'll be interested to see what the guidelines do, but I think it's useful to know about this regimen I personally don't think it's ready to be used in North America, although there's some editorials that are uh, in press right now that are going to emphasize that this is something we should consider. And the other question, again, is not that we should be uh, influenced by what insurance does, uh, but um, uh, insurance companies would be delighted if you can give that first dose of info in the ER and then the send the patient out. I doubt that's a safe and effective way to manage patients who have a lot of increased intracranial pressure, a lot of toxicity, and a bad outcome. Next slide. So that's what I think you need to know about the three most common. And next year, hopefully, Donna will give me more time so I can talk about all the opportunistic infections. So thanks very much. And if you think Mike Sag uh, runs this, he doesn't. It's Donna Jacobson. Is that true? Well, no, I wouldn't use that. Huh? Who runs this course? You, you or Don Jacobson? Oh, <laughs> not me. Okay. <laughs> no, well, we work on it together. It's, it's turned out to be pretty good so far. Um, so let's go back to that crypto um, story. The reason that I think a lot of us have 
concerns about a single dose is twofold. One, the original study that compared fluconazole to AMFO for two weeks, um, all those patients were in the hospital as well. The fluconazole just didn't have enough oomph to get them through. And the mortality difference was significant. And most of the deaths were in the first two weeks. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I think part of the part of the issue about once one dose and done is that so you can treat somebody maybe even as an outpatient, get them their dose and send them on their way. But as you alluded to, the frequent LPs is probably the most important um, protector against mortality because the high pressure needs to be managed. And it's hard to do that when people are at home and get them to come back. So I think we need more information. That's just why you're probably not hearing many people say, yep, I, I do that. I'd be interested. Has anybody in this room used a regimen of a single dose liposomal uh, info since this came out? Has anybody tried this? No. Okay. Okay. Some questions here. So what's your opinion on prophylaxis and PJP in virally suppressed patient with a CD4 count less than 200? Um, you're the one I think uh, uh, always talks about this. Uh, uh, I think the, the issue is um, this is one of these gray areas where as soon as your viral load goes down, no matter what your CD4 count is, your risk of pneumocystis goes way down. As your CD4 count goes up, your risk continues to go down. So where do you draw the line that pneumocystis prophylaxis isn't needed? Uh, there's, a, there's a study that I think I stole from Mike uh, on a, um, I think it was a Jens Lundgren study, showing that between zero and 100, if your viral load uh, is uh, uh, below the level of detection, you don't need, uh, I'm sorry, you, uh, if it's between 100 and 200, you don't need prophylaxis. If it's at zero and 100, you probably do. But that's based on a lot of statistical uh, machinations. So I don't think there's a right answer, but if somebody's tolerating the pneumocystis prophylaxis, I would personally uh, keep it up until their CD4 count was 200. Or if they're really slow rising, I guess at some point you can stop. But I don't have an absolute criteria, except if they're tolerating it, you might as well continue. But what, what are they doing in Alabama? Yeah, well, I would I wait till it gets just about 100. But most people have been on for six months, at least suppressed for six months. And most people do get above 100. Um, a few, like we talked about earlier today, may not. But uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to stop any kind of prophylaxis before. One of the things that the, the newer guidelines are suggesting for ARV is to check if somebody has a CD4 count less than 50, just routinely check cryptococcal antigen uh, as you start therapy. And you'll find some people who are cryptococcal uh, antigenemic without meningitis and you can prevent them from going there. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think again, the guideline, you know, you can say 200, 100, 50, but I think checking the cryptococcal guideline when your CD4 count is low, if you think of a disease that has at, at least 10 and more likely 15 or 20% mortality, uh, I think it's worth trying to um, uh, screen yeah. them and treat them early. But I'd make the same point about pneumocystis prophylaxis. It's almost a badge of honor to say, I stopped it, they're not taking it anymore. But I think you're taking a risk that maybe you stopped it too soon. So again, if they're tolerating it, I'm not sure what you accomplish unless you think the patient's being overwhelmed by too complicated a regimen, and that's a different equation. 
the turning the clock back this is one of the questions here um we used to always you know wring our hands over g6pd deficiencies do you check for that before you start backroom or you just plow through yeah i i think you should check um if they did an audit of uh, the clinic, of the uh, hospitals where I work, I would bet it's not done that often. But uh, I think it's one of those things that you can save yourself uh, a complication if you do that. Uh, so yeah. I guess I would turn that back to you. How often do you do it? I don't ever check it. <laughs> Sorry. All right. And I may have had problems, but I think I missed them because I hadn't seen many problems. Yeah. Well, it, it is admittedly a rare problem. and I. I uh, because the fallacy is that there's a lot of associations of G6PD deficiency and with other drugs like metronidazole. We don't usually check before we use that. Um, so I, that's what kind of got me into that. And, and, but I think if you're going to use Dapsone, which admittedly yeah. is almost never used, I think that's a bigger offender. Right. Um, just real quickly, could you review what cycle number is when you referred to that for PCR? Well, the, the more times you have to replicate the sample uh, to get detection, uh, if there's a large amount, you don't have to replicate in terms of cycles very often. If there's a small amount, it will take you many replications. So the smaller the number of cycles you have, presumably the more organisms you have. And that's a very crude way of estimating organism burden, but it makes sense Sort of like in the old days when we look at the uh, uh, sputum or the lavage to say, if you've got a lot of organisms, it's probably real. If you see one or two, it might not be. Yeah, I think I misspoke earlier because this next question comes up to this. I think it was CD4 less than 100, you check a cryptoantigen. So let's say somebody comes with CD4 count of 70, you check a cryptoantigen, they're asymptomatic, and the antigen comes back low positive in the serum. Let's say whatever, 1 to 80 or something. And are you comfortable at that point starting the antiretroviral therapy and fluconazole while you wait for an LP? Or let's say you do an LP, it's negative. Are you okay starting the cryptotherapy and the um, ARV at the same time? Yeah, well, I mean, I, th I think you have to be practical, but the answer is uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if you haven't gotten the LP, I think it's fine to start the fluconazole. Just don't wait too long to get the LP. But again, this is sort of the art of medicine. I don't think there are any rules. And I guess like with every other question, I'd turn it back to Mike and say, what do you do? I usually start at the same time in that setting. And so that was the next question. What is the opinion that you see, guidelines aside, um, if you have a patient with cryptomeningitis um, and you get them started on Amphobe, where, what's the earliest time you might be comfortable to start the ARV therapy? Well, you know, again, this, this gets into the gray zone that we were talking about. So I think the earlier, the better. I probably would wait uh, at least for uh, five or six or seven days to make yeah. sure that you know what the toxicity for the AMFO and the 5FC are. You don't, think, you don't get that complicated. But admittedly, most of the antiretroviral regimens are pretty well tolerated. So I would wait a few days but I don't have a magic number. If the patient's really doing well, I'd probably do it in less than a week. Uh, if they're having a rocky course, I might wait a little bit. But uh, again, just to be consistent, what do you do? Yeah, so the four to six weeks, I, I think the four to six weeks is way too long. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and when do you start your... Oh, so I, I would do... A, I'm still giving two weeks of AMFO be in the hospital with 5FC. So as they're heading towards discharge, I'll start the antiretroviral therapy, usually day 10 or so after they've settled down and every, the headache's better and all that. Um, and there's a study that, uh, that Dr. Mazur alluded to that I was a part of where they collected data from cohorts around the North America, Europe, Australia, and there was about 200 patients and just experience, and they statistically created a randomized trial. Um, I don't know exactly how they do that, but they did it. And they, they looked at before and after two weeks of initiating therapy after crypto. And the people that started before the two-week mark actually did a little better um, all the way across the board. Mortality was low in both groups, but the mortality was a little bit lower in the people who started early. What that tells me at, at a minimum is that it's different treating people in the US, Europe, Australia than it is in other parts of the world. And secondly, I don't think there's a lot of harm in starting in the first two weeks, especially if you lean more towards day 10 to 14. Yeah, but just in, in case that maybe I answered one question that maybe I didn't understand. But if you have asymptomatic cryptococcal antigenemia, I think starting antiretroviral therapy soon, I don't see it as an issue when you're starting fluconazole. If you have somebody with symptomatic cryptococcal meningitis, then I think you need to wait a little bit longer, but probably not four to six weeks. Yeah. Is that, is that yeah. basically what you're saying? Yeah. So here's a question that we didn't get to, but I think it's important. We, we can measure a lot of things now, as you pointed out. So a patient comes in with a CD4 count of 50 and a half hour load pre-therapy, and a panel is ordered and a CMV comes back positive because we can do that now, right? The transplant patients get it all the time. Um, no end organ disease that you can see, an ophthalmologist looks, no retinitis and no belly pain and no diarrhea. What do you do with that result? Well, I would say that there's something that the beta deglucan and CMV PCR have in common, <laughs> and that is you should never do either of them. Um, the, the, the CMV PCR is a uh, great test if you have a transplant patient in HIV, I'm not sure really what to do because it's really a marker of immunosuppression. And the lower your CD4 count, the more likely you are to have a positive PCR for CMV and the higher it's gonna be. Uh, in people with end organ disease, whether it's retinitis or colitis, uh, there isn't a good correlation between serum positive uh, by PCR and whether or not the organ disease you're dealing with, the colitis or the... Um, uh, retinitis is due to CMV. So I, I personally don't see a role to ever get a, pneumocyst, uh, a CMV PCR, and I don't know what to do with it. But again, Dr. Zag, what do you do? No, I don't order it. <laughs> yeah, because for that exact reason. Here's one question that I think we'll end with. Um, different disease with PML. Somebody comes in, they have the progressive sort of symptoms. You do an MRI and it shows diffuse white matter disease. Uh, not in making any kind of sense anatomically, um, other than it looks like PML. The NLP is done and the JC virus PCR is negative. Um, is that PML with a negative JC virus or is that um, something else that we don't know? I, I think you have to make a clinical diagnosis because what the literature would tell you is that there are a fair number, and I don't know whether it's 20% or 30%, of people have biopsy-proven PML and have, an, have a negative uh, CSF uh, uh, JC uh, PCR. So I think you can definitely see that. 
But when you have a clinical diagnosis, there aren't a lot of other things that cause large white matter lesions. Um, so um, uh, the question is, what do you do? You know, David Clifford has been the head of the PML section of the guidelines. And for 30 years, we've act, act, been asking him, what do we do when we have PML? And for 30 years, he hasn't had an answer. Um, so there is no therapy. So obviously, you just have to start them on any retroviral therapy. There's some really fascinating stuff about cytotoxic T cells directed to you know, various antigens that I think are promising. But I think you have to make a clinical diagnosis. And all you're going to do is start any retroviral therapy and watch them. And I guess I'm not sure what else would present like that with the white matter lesion. I mean, right. MS looks differently. So I think I think with the radiology, you can be pretty confident about what your diagnosis is without the CSF. But of course, it's always helpful to get that uh, JC yeah. virus PCR. It's great. Thank you very much, Henry. Wonderful. Yeah. And there's some.